is Bloomberg Surveillance. I see economic data improving the United States. I think that's becoming increasingly obvious, but I still think we're going to be growing in the twos somewhere. I would recommend that investors stay defensively postured and cautious. Policymakers, financial markets, and the economic and financial media look to the Fed to solve all the problems, and they're not able to. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance, we welcome all of you worldwide. Bloomberg Radio Plus, Bloomberg.com, and SiriusXM, Channel 119, Bloomberg 960, the Bay Area. Good morning. Good early morning, San Francisco. Of course, Bloomberg 1200, Boston. Bloomberg 1130 in absolutely gorgeous New York. And I guess a hot, sultry good morning. I haven't said that. It's like summer. Well, Washington. I'm not going with hot and sultry yet. But okay. It's, it's there, at but least warm. It's on the edge of warm. Bloomberg 99.1 FM, Washington and Baltimore. Good morning uh, as well. Bloomberg surveillance this morning brought to you by Cone Resnick Accounting Tax Advisory to minimize risk to capture value in private equity. You need Cone Resnick where forward thinking creates results. Find out how at ConeResnick.com, C-O-H-N-R-E-Z-N-I-C-K, ConeResnick.com, and we thank them for considered support through the uh, year. They have been more than kind. So is uh, the bid to commodities. Bruno Stenzial is with Eurasia Group, Ian Bremer's Eurasia Group. Um, he has worked with uh, various companies, including more capital management, and he just simply looks at the energy business and the natural resources uh, business. Bruno, wonderful to have you here. Is it for real? Goldman says it's not. There, It's all over the media today, the business media. Uh, Jeff Curry and the team at Goldman say, maybe not. You push against that idea. Yeah, and you know what? You have to start by asking yourself, define what's real, right? Uh, you know, that, that's the big question. What are your expectations for prices? Um, Highly respect that team over there. I've been I've been reading their stuff for for, for almost 20 years now. Um, I am I am theorizing that oil has seen the lows. You know, a lot of people were calling for a $20 price deck because that was what was needed to get U.S. production offline. Um, I don't think so. I don't think we need to go that low to see the supply response that's needed to rebalance the market. So we're looking for a slow, steady, gradual uh, upward price movement from here to around $40 a barrel for the balance of 2016, and then slowly gravitating towards an average price of $50 a barrel in 2017. And at that point, you're going to start to see the U.S. producers come back into the market with new supply, supply that will take care of the decline rates and incrementally add. So I think the worst is behind us. I think you're seeing a knee-jerk reaction to the market's expectation the worst is behind us. We'll slowly gravitate into a range, volatility will dry up, and we'll start to slowly ratchet up from there. But I don't think you're going to see a $20 price deck. If we get uh, to that level, um, you're talking balance. We're not going to have people who need cash pumping more oil just because the price is higher and send us back into trouble? Yes, and that's a great point. I think at the end of the uh, end of the day, and this is where, where OPEC can't get too cute, right? Um, if you have a price deck that balances the market, you're incrementally drawing down on stocks anywhere between sort of $45 to $50. The real risk is OPEC loses control again. 
because now you have U.S.-based oil and gas producers that have all reconfigured their business models to be profitable at $50. So you'll start to see increases in global production at that price level. And look, this is what this phenomenon is all about, right? This is a supply-driven price route based upon something secular, something changed. We can access more oil faster, cheaper, and more efficiently. That's not going away. Why did we put a floor in here? Uh, yes, the Saudis and the Russians agreed to freeze production. Nobody believed that they're actually doing it. They didn't set any targets or any way to prove what's happening. So <laughs> why did this work? It worked because I think that, you know, low prices cure low prices generally, uh, particularly in cyclical commodities. Um, at the end of the day, there is a certain amount or certain number of U.S.-based producers mm-hmm. that cannot operate under sort of, you know, sub-$35 price environment. So the market was always expecting year-on-year declines in production. The rate of those, or the, the, the steepness of that decline curve was not as high as people thought. We don't have as much production coming off as anticipated, but it's coming off. Let's not forget, you, you know, year-on-year, U.S.-based oil production is off probably around 350,000 barrels a day at this point, and it will continue to come off unless prices go higher. So we'll slowly balance the market as production comes off in the States. As we do that, prices will go higher, only to be met by new production increases. And that's what this is all about, right? At the end of the day, we're no longer in this super cycle. We are in a process where crude oil will reset into ranges, and that's what we're looking yeah, at. Yeah, I mean, I'll go with that. You don't have the, the, maybe you don't have the China catalyst to get us out to stupid pricing again. But did you see the catharsis to clear markets? I mean, the heart of your theory versus the good work of, of Jeff Curry and others who are more suspect about a bid being set in, the, the heart of the matter is you got to clear that supply glut. Did we do that? Or is Cushing still up to its eyeballs in oil? Well, we are in the process of clearing that supply gut. And I'll give you the expectations idea. We're, you know, we're, we're betting on where we are June, where we are September yep. in that. What gives you the confidence to believe that Cushing is cleared? Well, it's not necessarily just about Cushing. I agree. I, you know, I mean, Cushing is definitely, it's the hub that prices WTI, which is the benchmark, and, and, and we all know that. But firstly, you know, define, define Cushing being full. Uh, in essence, that's that's very hard to do because throughout my career doing this, you know, we've had multiple instances where Cushing was quote unquote full, and it never quite gets full. So the reality is that's a very difficult thing to determine. And, sure. and at the end of the day, you have to remember when 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 a certain uh, uh, storage basin gets full, you have other areas that you start to fill up. So you know, I, I think the basis has to be looking at year on year production declines. We are in the process of clearing up that glut via production declines. And what I mean by that is U.S. producers are not given a price signal to develop new reserves profitably in order to negate production declines. So we needed to take price down to that level, which I think we have, because you're seeing year-on-year price uh, uh, production declines. So we're slowly cleaning the market up. I think as that happens... You'll see it in the numbers weekly and then again monthly. The market is always forward-looking, and that's what it's pricing in now. 
We reached a price where we're seeing a significant amount of uh, production declines that will continue. Stocks will begin to draw down. We'll raise to a price level Mm -hmm. where producers can develop raw acreage at a higher price. That price is probably around 45 to 50 bucks. Every EMP company in their quarterly uh, uh, statements has been saying, we have learned, will learn how to operate profitably at $50. That's the signal right from the horse's mouth. Well, you got a lot of EMP companies who may not be around in a month or two. Uh, what what's that looking like now as we get into the bank reset season? Yeah, no, it, it, that's the million dollar question, and and I think the Saudis in particular were were as gloomy as it sounds. We're looking for more bankruptcies. The reality is when you start to really look at the detail behind the bankruptcies that have been announced in the last uh, eighteen months to two years. There have been in North America roughly 40 to 43 bankruptcies. The issue is the, the companies that have been declaring bankruptcies are not volumetrically significant enough to cause yeah. this sort of cataclysmic drop in U.S. production. Clearly, we haven't seen it. They tend to be the names, quite frankly, you would have expected to declare bankruptcy, the small to medium-sized names that were highly levered Agreed. out of the Agreed. gate. Yeah. And they're just not big enough. The the real and this is one of the reasons why production's been so resilient in this in the states is the larger volumetrically significant producers have had no trouble accessing the cheapest form of capital, and that's accessing the equity markets. Mm-hmm. You know, take a look at the secondaries that we've seen last year and into this year. Big numbers, generally successful secondary offerings. Devon Energy is a notable one most recently. Yeah. raised $1.3 billion. And the interesting thing is when you look at what they all say they're going to do with that capital, well, primarily they're going to pay down debt to preserve their credit rating. Because, again, a lot of this is orchestrated behind the scenes by the credit rating agencies. Mm-hmm. You want to maintain your credit rating. You want to maintain your current cost. Your get, you yeah. know, pay down your debt and, and start to get disciplined. So they're all paying down debt. But almost all of them are saying, that they're also going to use a part of that revenue to develop reserves. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, they're in the business of producing. Yeah, that, that's the DNA. Well, let's come back. Uh, Bruno Stenzio with us. I want to talk about net gas, which has been a life of its own as well. Uh, Mike, an urgent message. Leslie Patton reporting for Bloomberg News. Shake Shack drops. Shake Shack fell in early trading after Tom Keene did not buy the Smoke Shack double say, it's burger. Our fault. Uh, it's our fault. <laughs> 925 calories, $9.64. We, we could do something about that today. I think we should do that road trip today, Madison Square Try Park. Help, help them out. They're down 8%. Seriously, they, uh, they've, they've lightened up a little bit this morning as they yeah. go in search of growth. That's your Shake Shack report. For those of you worldwide, Shake Shack is the official Lunch counter for Bloomberg Surveillance, where we look at the Shroom Burger, 795 calories as well. The Shroom Burger. Futures are negative eight. Time now to check in with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Michael. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Polls are opening today for presidential primaries. Democrats vote today in Michigan and Mississippi. Republicans vote today in Michigan, Mississippi, Idaho, and Hawaii. An appeal hearing will take place today from the Utah branch of Planned Parenthood. They want to reverse a judge's decision that allowed the state's governor to cut off funding to the organization. South Korea says it will sanction 40 individuals and 30 organizations abroad, mostly in North Korea, as part of its punitive measures on the North for its recent nuclear test and rocket launch. Today's announcement comes a day after North Korea warned of preemptive nuclear strikes in response to the start of Seoul-Washington military drills. 
The North views those drills as an invasion rehearsal. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Mike Labar. Mike, Tom? And, Michael, thanks so much. Coming up, uh, Bruno Stenzio, we're going to talk about nat gas. We haven't done enough on that. It is truly imploding. Nat gas. We'll do that next. Bloomberg Surveillance. The news update brought to you by Mercedes-Benz this month. Your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealers welcome spring with limited-time offers on select models like the sporty CLA and the versatile GLA, each engineered and priced to move. Visit MBUSA.com today. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. U.S. Stock Index futures are lower this morning. Let's go to the first word breaking news desk for today's morning call. And here's Bill Maloney. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Karen. U.S. futures have paired some of their losses since the last time we spoke. Dow futures now lower by 69 points. SB futures dropped 10. And NASDAQ futures fall 25. The U.S. 10 yield at 1.85%. And crude futures turn higher, now up 0.5%. Main European markets have paired or reversed their losses. Italy gains 0.3%. After the Bellis Night, Shake Shack expects same-source sales to rise 25 to 3% in 2016. Shares down 8% pre-market. And Urban Outfitters EPS topped highest estimates. Shares up 9% pre-market. Regarding earnings this morning, Dick Sporting 2017 EPS view missed estimates. In other news, Goldman Sachs warned the commodities rally is premature and Qualcomm boosted its dividend. Finally, some of your key Wall Street upgrades and downgrades. BMO cut to neutral at Credit Suisse. Boston Bear cut to underperform at CLSA. AutoNation cut to sell over at Goldman Sachs. Valspar cut to sector weight at KeyBank. Panera Bread raised to overweight at Morgan Stanley with a price target of 250 And Actowin cut to neutral over at SunTrust. Live from the first of breaking news desk, I'm Bill Maloney. Karen? Thanks, Bill. To hear live breaking news over your Bloomberg, type Squawk Go on your terminal. That's S-Q-U-A-W-K Go. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Bloomberg Surveillance this morning brought to you by Invesco. Have you considered all of your investment alternatives, non-traditional asset classes, and strategies may help you achieve your goals? Find out more at Invesco.com slash alternatives. Michael? Bruno Stanziale is here uh, with us from Eurasia Group. He's the Global Oil Practice Director. And uh, I know you want to get to natural gas, but I just have to ask a quick question because we just had a, a listener write in and uh, say there was sort of a disconnect uh, to them in what you had said about uh, the oil companies refinancing and going to the capital markets. Uh, they're hearing nothing but. Uh, oil companies in high yield, and high yield is imploding because energy companies are in trouble. So um, how's that working? Yeah, no, no, and, and, and I think that, that that's part of what I was alluding to before. High yield, absolutely. That, that's where most of these bankruptcies are residing. I mean, uh, clearly the, the companies that were highly leveraged at, you know, higher costs of capital are going to have a harder time in a lower price environment. The, the real challenge is, if we're talking about rebalancing the market, is how volumetrically significant are the high-yield names that are having trouble right now. So there are a lot of people who are able to refinance in investment grade. That's correct. So if you look at where the volume, the, per, the percentage of volume production is coming from, you're talking about names like EOG, Pioneer, Devon. These are large 
EMPs that if you were to sort of aggregate all of the sort of mid to larger size uh, publicly traded EMPs, they're not having a hard time raising money. So, you know, if you're looking for bankruptcies to clean up the supply situation, you're not getting it in the names that control a significant or impactful amount of the production. Tell me about net gas. I missed it. Mike McKee nailed it. Said one day, look at the chart of net gas. I was thunderstruck how oil's going one way and net gas is going the other way and inflation adjusted. Basically, we've never seen this in the modern age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it can't catch a break. It really can't. Um, and, and here's the funny thing about natural gas. We had a record number of coal plant retirements mm -hmm. in the power sector in 2015. Everything worked the way it was supposed to. It was worked the way it was supposed to. You know, at the end of the day, that, that power generation has to go somewhere now, and it's, it's overwhelmingly going to natural gas. So you had this kick in demand in the power sector. Uh, I can only imagine where it would have gone if it were not for that, because in 2016, you see a precipitous drop in coal plant retirements. So, look, the reality is a lot of this is weather-based. I mean, look at the winter, right? We, we didn't have much of a winter. That really... You, you really ascribe it to the, still the standard correlation to weather? No, no, it's part of it. The real issue is episodic, though, and I don't think we're going to see the same situation in 2016. We had an onslaught of supply hit the market in 2015 into this year. You had a huge swath of the Marcellus Basin being tied in, meaning production was being tied in to hit market. Huge, unprecedented amount of supply mm -hmm. that hit the market. Everyone saw it coming, right? Everyone right. knew. Um, but, you know, it was really a this dance between coal retirements and production hitting the market from these, these infrastructure tie-ins. Clearly, the weather was the balancing item, okay. and that really okay. that really tripped things. Up. Bruno, great to have you here with news. Chevron to cut capital spending a huge twenty six percent. They go to seventeen to twenty two billion, which I think is a center tendency. Let's round it to twenty uh, billion. They did thirty eight billion in two thousand thirteen capex thirty eight thirty five thirty. 30, and then it implodes down. Mm -hmm. What are the ramifications of a CapEx cut like that? Yeah, I mean, they're huge. And, and, and Does it just show how much waste there was? No, I don't think that there was – it shows that there was a lot of waste. I think the waste is going to come out not from the CapEx uh, investment side but from the, um, the, the operating and variable cost side. There was waste there that they're rooting out. I think that um, – look, the Saudis in particular, I mean, they've been pretty savvy despite a lot, of, um, a lot of commentary. I think they've been pretty savvy about the signals they're looking for, CapEx certainly being one of them. You start with CapEx, and there's got to be a correlation between reduced CapEx and ultimately reduced production, which is what they're all looking for. Yes, I mean, you need to see CapEx coming off first, but it has to be followed by right. a commensurate amount of production but decline. The critical question is, are they cutting CapEx for the financial engineering of saving a dividend at all costs? Um, I think that's going to be company-specific, but I think it's it's prudent deployment of capital. At the end of the day, they're responsible for doing one thing, taking investors' capital and deploying yeah. it in the most efficient way and generating the highest uh, risk-averse mm -hmm. return on capital employed. Um, so I think that it's really centered around that, that sort of investor sort of push mm -hmm. to do that. Now, we've got a lot more things to talk about. Let me go in quickly uh, to get this in, and I mean, unfortunately – uh, quickly, the basic idea of CapEx reduction, is it to a new lower level 
or is it a one-off and CapEx comes back down the road? If if CEOs and C-suite level executives think that they can deploy capital for whatever IRR they think they, their constituents they'll need, do they'll do it. And, yeah. and right now, and this is the thing the Saudis have to be careful about in OPEC generally, is every oil and gas producer is, is pivoting and positioning themselves to deploy that capital that we're talking about okay. at $50. we got to leave. Bruno Stanziel with Eurasia Group. Uh, brilliant. Chevron cuts capital spending. Stay with us worldwide. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Coming up, the With All Due Respect highlight brought to you by Land Rover. If it's in your nature to cast off the everyday and seek adventure, the Discovery Sport was built to help your search. Visit LandRoverTriState.com for special offers during the only adventure sales event. Land Rover, above and beyond. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Welcome back to Bloomberg Surveillance. It's 8.30 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee. Economic Indicators brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer, RIA, that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. One number this morning, out early this morning, of course, the NFIB small business optimism number falls from 93.9 to 92.9. Some question about... um, what it actually means, that's the uh, the issue with the small business numbers. Uh, plans to hire, little changed, uh, no change in selling prices, no change, well, little little decline in capital spending, but still uh, still higher. So all in all, not telling you that uh, things are, are terrible, but uh, a little slower. Uh, so I don't, I, you know, this is a good question for our next guest to ask, you know, whether the NFIB survey tells them a whole lot. Yeah. Do you want to bring him in? You want me to bring him in? You Can go right ahead. I like to bring him in because I was trying to think of a name the other day, and I couldn't get it through my little brain. Fortunately, Dr. Mark Zandi came to the rescue. Is we go back to the 30s and look at Charles Coughlin, who, frankly, nobody remembers, except he was a huge deal in the ferment of economic depression. Mark Zandi, you bring up Charles Coughlin in your research note is being the one that said radio was a tool to get the masses going. We're seeing the same thing today, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, Tom. That uh, I was an op-ed about the Trump-Bernie uh, Sanders phenomena and uh, just uh, trying to point out that uh, we've been through this before, yeah. something similar back in the 30s. And Father Coughlin was a very strident voice uh, kind of expressing the same kind of concerns that many people feel today that is you know, manifest in, in what's going on politically. I mean, it's always there. We somehow get through it. Do you have the confidence as a nation we will move on as we did from, say, the Coughlin of 32, 33, with some recovery, even if we stumbled in 37 again? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm optimistic. I mean, uh, I think it's Warren Buffett that says never bet against the American economy. I think that's uh, that works. Um you know, I think a lot depends on the economy and, and the idea that it will continue to improve, that will create a lot of jobs, that will get to full employment, that wage growth will pick up. If all that happens, and I, and I think it will, then I think this 
this angst, which is real and, and you know based on something you know clearly uh, fundamental, will begin to fade yeah. away, and our politics will normalize. Yeah. Help us, and, and you've been so good at this over the years to frame the GDP growth rate we need to get escape velocity on the anger. Um, a lot of people use that is 3.2 percent. Uh, we're nowhere near that. Do we do we frame 2.8 percent is the new 3.2, and is that enough oomph to get us away from the divisiveness that we see now? Well, I think we're there t- now, Tom. I mean, uh, you know, underlying uh, GDP growth is say closer to two, but at two percent, we're creating a boatload of jobs. I mean, we're creating on average over 200,000 jobs per month, two and a half, three million a year, and that's what we've been doing consistently for four years. And that's a lot more than we need to absorb the growth in the working age population. It means that unemployment, underemployment will continue to decline. So we're, we're getting the kind of growth rates that we need. Uh, you know, it would be, it will become more of an issue going forward if, uh, if we don't see stronger GDP growth because we'll run out of people. We just won't have the bodies. And if we don't uh, see productivity growth and GDP growth pick up, then we'll have more of an issue. But just one quick sidebar on that. Please. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not convinced that we're measuring GDP right. Um, you know, two, it doesn't feel like a 2% world to me. It feels like a 3% world. Uh, and I think we are missing a lot of uh, GDP output that's going on out there, and I think that will become clear over time once we get better at measuring these things. Well, the uh, the, the, the level of GDP, uh, whatever the statistical number is, is – probably not going to impress people so much as seeing more money in their paychecks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so when does that start to change? Does that start to change just because we see unemployment fall? Or has something changed in society? Because it's not just a, a question of you know hourly wages, but uh, income inequality has gotten so big, median household income isn't rising. Uh, overall, it just seems that uh, the, I mean, obviously labor's share of, of, of capital is, has declined. Well, it's, it, that's the rolled over. It's changing because you know we've been in a world of uh, of high unemployment, high underemployment, and that's depressed wage growth and uh, you know stuck it to lower income, middle income households. But you're right; their median the median wage hasn't increased, and their living standards haven't improved. But here we are. Uh, we've created a lot of jobs. Uh, the unemployment rate is 4.9. The U6 underemployment rate, which is you know is a broad measure of slack. Now that nine seven, and we're very very close to those levels that were consistent historically with full employment, and that will lead to stronger wage growth. And I think it's already happening. You can see it to some degree in the Bureau of Labor Statistics data. You can see it in the ADP data, that's a payroll processing data that we put together, and it's happening. And I think a year from now, again, if we continue to uh, stay on this trend line with strong job growth, we're going to see much stronger wage growth. Mark Zandi with us uh, with Moody's Analytics as we look at. uh, the growth that's out there, of course, we get a lot of mail from people saying, Dr. Zandy, what are you smoking, uh, is they don't feel that they're part of it, uh, but we'll continue this discussion on a better than good uh, GDP growth. We thank all of you for listening. We thank you all for your messages. They come in in any way, any form. Off the Bloomberg Terminal, Bill emails in. He's a student of Depression history and uh, notes Father Coughlin uh, was a big influence Many would say a poor influence during the Depression. I was reading, uh, Mike, about the effort, literally a 10-year effort to get the guy off the air. Yeah. And he was protected by his bishop of Detroit at the time.
uh, until the war came along, and then basically they said with the war, you got to go. But thank you, Bill, for emailing it. Greatly appreciate that. Futures, negative 9. Dow futures, negative 61. Time to check in with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Michael. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Republican and presidential and Democratic presidential primaries will take place today in several states, with the biggest in Michigan. Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders campaigned in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Sanders thanked his supporters while ribbing Republican frontrunner Donald Trump. In Nebraska, there was a huge turnout. We won there by... You're right. I should have said huge. Senator Marco Rubio campaigned in his home state of Florida yesterday. Rubio spoke in Tampa. If I'm our nominee, I will unite this party. This party is fractured right now. And this party will be even deeply fractured if we nominate someone that 30% of the people in the party don't like or don't want. Florida's primaries are a week from today. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he canceled plans to visit President Obama later this month after he notified the White House last week that he probably would not make the trip. The Obama administration expressed surprise to learn about the cancellation. Today is the two-year anniversary of the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? Thank you, Michael. Time now for the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update with John Stashow. All right, Mike, NCAA tournament begins next week. There could be a heavy local presence, even in a year where St. John's and Rutgers both went 1-17 and in conference play. Seton Hall should make it in. Stony Brook's got a good chance. We'll play the America East final Saturday. Either Wagner or FDU's going. They'll play the Northeast final tonight. And Iona College heading to the NCAAs. The Gales beat Monmouth 79-76 in the Metro Atlantic final in Albany. And even with the loss, Monmouth may get an at-large invite the Hawks. Had several impressive non-league wins. Hofstra denied the pride, missed 12 straight shots over the second half, lost the Colonial Final in Baltimore to North Carolina Wilmington, 80-73 in overtime. Golden State bounced back from the embarrassing loss to the Lakers, beat Orlando. That's 45 consecutive home wins in the regular season. That's a new NBA record. Big question entering the Peyton Manning retirement presser in Denver. Would he be asked about the 20-year-old allegations of an incident involving a female trainer when Manning was at Tennessee? Brought to light recently because it was part of a Title IX lawsuit against the school he was asked. Well, you know, first of all, this is a joyous day, and nothing can overtake from this day. I think it is sad that uh, some people don't uh, uh, understand uh, the truth and the facts. And uh, I did not do what has been alleged, and I'm not interested in relitigating something that happened when I was 19 years old. The rest of the day was a celebration of Manning's brilliant career, and when pressed on why he was retiring now, he kept saying it was simply the right time. With the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stashen. John, thanks so much. Greatly appreciate that. Of course, the Euro 110.20. Yen was a 112 handle. We can give him back a little bit uh, uh, stronger yen this morning, 113.04. I'm going to call it a churn in foreign exchange oil. Green on the screen versus the risk-off field, 38-18, West Texas. Brent, a lofty 41-30. You heard Bernard Stanziel of Eurasia Group uh, really push against the Goldman Sachs theme, published theme this morning. Goldman saying, uh, don't be so sure, and Bernard Stanziel more optimistic about a range-bound, new range for oil, 41-33 on Brent. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. 
Coming up, the Fed meets next week. They've already accomplished most of what they forecast for 2016. So what do they do? We'll ask Mark Zandi here on Surveillance. If you... Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. Global stocks are, well, they're a little changed to lower now. A slump in Chinese exports were dragging metals lower and brought equities to a five-day winning streak, brought that winning streak to a halt. Right now, the DAX in Germany, though, is little changed. The CAC in Paris is down a tenth of a percent, and the FT100 is down two-tenths percent. S&P E-mini futures are down six points. Dow E-mini futures down 37, and NASDAQ E-mini futures are down about 14. And your Treasury up 16, 30 seconds. They yield 1.84. NYMEX crude oil up nine tenths percent or 35 cents to 38.24 a barrel. COMEX gold is up seven tenths percent or eight dollars sixty cents to 12.72.70 an ounce. The euro's at a dollar ten nineteen. The yen one thirteen point oh nine. Sanofi and Merck planning to end a two decade long joint venture to sell vaccines in Europe as revenue from the products dwindles. Small business optimism declining in February, according to the National Federation of Independent Business. The organization's monthly small business optimism. Optimism index fell to 92.9 last month compared to 93.9 in January. And Dick's Sporting Goods down almost 5% in early trading after posting disappointing fourth quarter results and providing a forecast for the current year that trailed analyst estimates. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Uh, Karen, uh, thanks so much. It is 848 on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Justin Fox, a columnist for Bloomberg View. Wouldn't it be fun to work at a company where nobody is the boss? For lots of people, apparently not. Online shoe retailer Zappos fell off of Fortune Magazine's 100 Best Companies to Work For list last week after switching over to a hierarchy-free management system called Holacracy. And digital publisher Medium announced Friday that it has decided to ditch Holacracy because, quote, the system had begun to exert a small but persistent tax on our effectiveness, unquote. In Holacracy, employees inhabit roles that give them full responsibility for some slice of what an organization does. There's a process for resolving conflicts and a framework for meetings to keep things moving along. What there aren't supposed to be are managers or hierarchies. It all sounds very democratic, except that it's the bosses, such as Zappos CEO Tony Shea, who usually push their companies to adopt holacracy. And it's the rank and file who complain and resist. Why is that? Well, maybe it's because being a boss is hard. There are lots of tough decisions and often little credit. Really, who'd want to do that? I'm Justin Fox, a columnist for Bloomberg View. For more Bloomberg opinion and commentary, please go to BloombergView.com or ViewGo on the Bloomberg Terminal. This has been Bloomberg View. And Bloomberg View commentary, it can be heard hourly weekdays on Bloomberg Radio. March 16th, an important date. Michael, bring us up to speed on where we stand with our good guest. Federal Open Market Committee holds its next meeting. And at one point, people were fairly convinced it was going to be the next uh, date for a rate increase in the United States. Now, Looks like that's off the table from what we're hearing from Fed officials. But uh, Mark Zandi from Moody's Analytics, he's the chief economist there. Let me ask you this. In December, the Fed put out its uh, survey of economic uh, projections, what they suggested was going to happen to the economy by the fourth quarter of this year. 
growth of about 2%, unemployment rate of uh, 4.7%, and inflation, uh, core inflation of 1.6%. Uh, well, we got inflation above that number. Uh, unemployment is just above 4.7% uh, and 4.9%, and uh, we've got growth of about 2%. So, uh, first of all, those who said the Fed was crazy in making those forecasts, don't seem to be correct. Uh, what about those who say the Fed should not be raising rates? Well, I, I think they'll pause in at this uh, upcoming meeting just because of the turmoil in financial markets uh, since the beginning of the year, and they'll want to see what the fallout on the economy of that has been. I mean, it looks like the fallout, at least from the data, is very modest. Can't, can't really see it, but it's still too early to conclude that there won't be some impact. So I think they'll wait. But you know, uh, by the June meeting, uh, I think they'll have all the evidence they need that uh, it's, it's time to raise uh, rates and continue to normalize policy. The the economy is still creating lots of jobs, unemployment is still declining, and inflation is, uh, you know, actual inflation has uh, actually picked, has picked up, and it's one point, as you said, 1.7%, which isn't too far away from their target. So I think we'll, we're in for a series of rate hikes late this year going into 2017. Well, if that's the case, then doesn't the market have a heart attack over that idea? Yeah, they have some adjust, adjustment to do. Uh, yeah, because the markets, last I looked, they're pricing in maybe one rate hike this year, one and a half. Uh, I would expect three in a series next year. So, yeah, I think the markets will have to adjust, and there will be more volatility in financial markets. I, I think uh, what we've seen so far this year is, is going to continue on. It's something we'll have to get used but to. doesn't that then – pose a conundrum for the Fed. They don't want to raise rates now because of volatility, which means they have to raise rates more later, which will cause volatility. Doesn't that then cause them to pause? We must be talking to Mark Zandi to have a question like that. <laughs> no, because I don't think, as we will see, that it's going to have a major impact on the economy. You know, markets go up, down, all around, sideways. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, at the end of the day, uh, we're still creating 200,000 jobs per month. <clears throat> the economy's moving forward. So, uh, you know, the financial turmoil is very uncomfortable, you know, particularly for people on Wall Street who are observing this and, you know, wealthy individuals watching their their screen. But, you know, for most Americans, I think it's, a, you know, right. a sideshow. Mark, we call the screen a Bloomberg terminal. You're supposed to oh, yeah, say I'm that. Sorry. I'm Come sorry. On. Yeah, I, I should have thought, yeah, you know, and I'm well-versed with that Bloomberg terminal, as you know, Tom. Uh, but, <laughs> but guys like you know where the unemployment rate is. You mentioned the U6 earlier. We're at an extraordinary point. I did a chart yesterday showing how rare sub-4.0% unemployment is. Jonathan tweets out to us this morning, Dr. Zandi, and he says, Dr. Zandi is ignoring the fact that most new jobs are minimum wage. And secondly, <coughs> excuse me, over 90 million people have quit looking for a job. Give us an update on this real belief in America that most of the new jobs are, quote, unquote, full-time good jobs. Help us yeah, with that. Yeah, that's just, you know, I, I'm, I'm perplexed by that. It's just wrong. Uh, I mean, when you create 200,000 jobs per month, and, again, that's we've been doing that plus, you create all kinds of jobs. Uh, yes, low-paying, retail, leisure, hospitality, but construction jobs, we're creating lots of them. They're, they're all middle-paying. Uh, you know, K-12 education jobs, lots of those. They're middle-paying. And a lot of high-paying jobs in professional services, is, services, healthcare. So it's all all Okay. Is the distinction the perceived or expected mobility among those groups that a lot of America thinks they can't advance or their kids can't advance to that better place. 
Yeah, I'm on board with that. I think that's exactly right. And that goes to the angst that we're being expressed politically, going back to our the Father Coughlin discussion. I think that's exactly right. But I would make I, I would suggest that as the economy tightens, and, and, a, and a year from now our problem isn't going to be unemployment. It's going to be a lack of labor. And at that point, we're going to see wage growth pick up for folks at all parts of the income distribution. It's a long time in coming, and we should be doing a lot of things to address this issue uh, from a policy perspective. But the economy is going to be in a right in a, in a good enough place that everyone, more people, are going to benefit, even those at the bottom part of the income distribution. Well, that's the argument that Stanley Fisher was making yesterday that the uh, Phillips curve isn't broken; it's just slow. No, it's alive and well. It's very obvious. It's very clear. You can look at you know, wage growth across industry relative to the strength of those industries. You can see it. You can look at it regionally, look at which parts of the country are doing well and not, and you can see it in wage growth. You can see it internationally. The Phillips curve works. It has, has always worked and it is working now, and we'll, we'll see it. it. You know, it's already happening. Well, in, the, in that case, uh, by the end of the year, and this uh, will we'll come full circle on Father Coughlin, when it comes time for people to vote, what are they going to be thinking about the economy? The, second Tuesday in November? Well, you know, I, I do think that people uh, will, uh, I think in general, uh, that the establishment, the, the, the political middle will hold. Uh, I'd be surprised. That's what happened in the 30s in the Depression when we had Father Coughlin. I think that's what's going to happen this go around. But, you know, uh, it, it, I'm sure it's going to be a close election no matter who's running. Mm-hmm. But uh, a year or two from now, I think the, the economy and the political environment and backdrop will will be very different. Dr. Zandi, thank you so much. Mark Zandi, Moody's Analytic, and he has been a resilient optimist on the American uh, economic <laughs> experiment. Mike, I think it's fascinating. You know, you talk about, of course, with, with Nancy Reagan dying, you talk about the, uh, the arch ring and concept of mourning in America. When we have people talking about a new mourning in America, the mail just lights up. Yeah, the, I, it, you know, I don't have an opinion, folks. I do, but I don't let it out. The mail just lights up. That's a fact. That's a fact. Well, um, there are a lot of people who don't feel that we're there yet. Yeah, and, also, um, which explains the politics. Yeah, there is. I mean, politics is pretty ugly. But I think Mark may be right. And there's an awful lot of weight to the political system. And to upend yeah. it totally. I mean, we saw. Remember, uh, remember um, uh, back in 1992 when Ross Perot was yeah. leading in the polls at one point, and he was a non-factor by the end. So let yeah. us see what happens. We got to get down the road. We thank uh, uh, Brett Baer and uh, Chuck Todd for their perspective as well. Of course, a lot of this. What we do, economics, finance, investment, international relations, filtering in to your weekend reading and your political consideration as we move through the election cycle. I'm Bloomberg Radio. We do that. I'm really proud of what we do starting 11 a.m. Sunday morning and going through Sunday afternoon where you can hear the political dialogue of this nation with good people like Fox News Sunday and Meet the Press. From New York, this is Bloomberg Radio.